Good morning and uh, happy Easter to all of you here as well as those of you who are watching online. And um, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, for those of you who are here, we do have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. So the accounts of the resurrection show that the people closest to Jesus were in danger of missing it. I mean, even the people that saw Jesus, they were in danger of missing the resurrection. This is going to be true, as we're going to see in just a few moments, we're going to look at one of the scenes of the empty tomb, as told by uh, John. And, uh, but it's also true of the disciples who were closest to Jesus. And so uh, Jesus, after he's appeared to the disciples, after they've talked to him, after they've eaten with him, after they've even touched him, we read this at the very end of Matthew's gospel. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Even their face-to-face with Jesus, they were missing the resurrection. They were in danger of missing it. To miss the resurrection is to miss the very core of the Christian faith, and not just the very core of the Christian faith, but the greatest hope that our faith offers. And if the disciples could miss the resurrection, how much more easily could we lose, miss the resurrection. We're always in danger of missing the resurrection. So we don't have to miss the resurrection. And in order to to hopefully ensure that we don't, we're going to look at five ways that you can miss the resurrection uh, so that hopefully we get to the core of our faith and not just the core of our faith again, but the hope that our faith offers. And before we do that, we're going to pray together. We're going to pray a prayer of illumination, asking God's Spirit to speak to our hearts and our minds and to empower us to live His Word And this prayer is based on John chapter 10, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your love for us changes everything. You made a way for us to know you. You sent your son to die so that we could live. His sacrifice is our salvation. His resurrection is our victory. By your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word. Show us your truth. Teach us more of who you are and who we are in you. And may the new life that we have received and the freedom we find in you point others to your saving grace. Father, we also, as we have been each week here, we pray for the trial that's happening in Minneapolis that is just felt all over the world. We pray for it to be a just trial. We pray for fairness. We pray that the truth comes to light, uh, whatever that is, Father, in all of its dimensions. Father, we pray for state and local officials and for law enforcement as they plan for the aftermath, whatever that might be. We pray that you protect lives and that you protect property. And we pray for uh, whatever protests may take place. We pray that uh, they will be peaceful and that they will uh, accomplish people peaceful and good purposes. Help us as Christians in this time to think, speak, and act in ways that reflect mercy justice, and humility in our polarized world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's hear the scripture read by one of our five ochres. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And now verses 11 through 16. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb 
and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. All right, so on this weekend, all over the world, over a billion people are going to be celebrating Easter. Over a billion. They're going to be doing it in person. They're going to be doing it online. And the reality is that out of those over a billion, there will probably be millions who actually miss the resurrection because it's easy to happen to miss the meaning of it, to miss the power, to miss the experience of what it means that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So we're going to look at five ways that we can miss the resurrection, and hopefully we can avoid these. The first one is that we look for the wrong Jesus. We look for the wrong Jesus. Even though Jesus had repeatedly taught his followers that he would die and that he would rise from the dead, none of his followers followers believed him. And it may not just have been a matter of not believing. It may have been that with their preconceived notions, they couldn't even conceive of what it was that he was talking about. Mary's not looking when she's there. Mary Magdalene is not looking for the risen Jesus. She's looking for the dead body of Jesus. She's looking for the wrong Jesus. And Jesus is standing there right in front of her, and she assumes it can't be him, it's the gardener. And that maybe he knows where that dead body is. There are all kinds of ways that we can look for the wrong Jesus, but all of them have one thing in common. All of them diminish Jesus. Mary and the other disciples had diminished Jesus. Now, understand, they believed Jesus was the Messiah, uh, the waited one, the one that they had been waiting for. They believed that Jesus was a great teacher. They believed that he was a miracle worker. They had a very high view of of him, but they couldn't comprehend, they couldn't believe in his resurrection, in his power, in his divinity. Today, people uh, oftentimes don't want to toss out Jesus altogether. Uh, This has been for a long time. You know, Jesus is kind of a compelling figure in history, so people like to oftentimes, not necessarily, even if they don't follow him, they don't throw out everything that he said, and they talk about him being, you know, a great teacher, someone that uh, oftentimes they will focus on, well, they'll focus on the things that confirm their own biases, their own perspectives, things that Jesus said. But they don't focus on who Jesus said he was. So many decades ago, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and he addressed this idea that's been around for a long time. And so this is what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing you must not say. And he explains why. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell 
you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, and you can kill him as a demon, uh, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He, was, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We miss the resurrection of Jesus when we're looking for the wrong Jesus. We diminish him into something less than what he is. A second way that we can miss the resurrection is when we look for an affirming Jesus. Now, by this, I mean very specifically a Jesus who affirms our perspective on life and who affirms our way of life. Jesus affirms us as his persons. Jesus affirms us as persons because he loves us, but he challenges almost everything else about us. Again, because he loves us. He challenges us. It's clear in the summary of his preaching at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the very first chapter, as it talks about Jesus launching his preaching ministry. This is how Mark summarizes what Jesus said. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. What's our response? Repent. Repent and believe the good news. To repent means change your mind, change your direction. It challenges us. It challenges us at the core of our lives. It challenges our thinking, our actions, our speaking. Jesus challenges several things in our lives. He challenges our self-righteousness and our pride. And so in Luke chapter 18, we have this story that Jesus told. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went into a temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, that was the religious man, and the other was a tax collector, the irreligious man. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus challenges our self-righteousness. He challenges our pride. Jesus also challenges us when we focus our lives and our hopes in success, wealth, financial security, experiences, pleasures, anything that is less than Him. And so in Mark chapter 10, we have this story from the life of Jesus. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, I have this thing that I do that I know irritates some people. It's kind of like a pastor joke. Uh, I'll say to someone, how you doing? And they say, I'm good. And I always say, no, you're not. Only God is good because of this passage, just in case I've ever done that to you, okay? So he says, Jesus says, so you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. That is a great phrase. 
Okay, so what follows here is a challenge to this young man, this specific young man. He looks at him and he loves him. And he says, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus challenges us because he loved us. Jesus challenges us because he knows this reality that he tells us uh, about in Luke's gospel. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? We can miss the resurrection. We can miss it if we're looking for the wrong Jesus, the dead Jesus, or a Jesus that is diminished. We can miss the resurrection if we are looking for a Jesus that's going to affirm our way of life, our way of thinking. We can miss the resurrection, thirdly, when we look for a Jesus that will solve all of our problems. Jesus does, in a sense, of course, solve all of our problems, but we miss the resurrection We miss its power and its meaning when we expect Jesus to solve all of our problems in the way that we think he should solve them and on our timetable. Jesus actually warned his followers. This is his timetable. This is his reality. He warned his followers that to follow him would open them up to a whole rash of new problems, new problems. So this is what he says in John's gospel to his disciples. If the world hates you, Keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If, he, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He warned them. You follow me, you're going to have a whole new set of problems. But in the midst of that, he also offered hope, hope in the midst of those new problems. So at the end of the Beatitudes, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the last Beatitude is one that he expands on. And the last one has to do with these kinds of problems. So here's what he says. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now he expands it. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. There is great hope. New problems, great hope on his timetable, in his way. The resurrection ensures that our greatest problems will be solved in his way and in his time. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. So you've got Adam, you have Christ, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When he rose from the dead, he set a process in motion that the last enemy will be death. And when death is destroyed, all of our problems will be solved. And that'll be true for everyone who puts their faith in him. Now, tragically, a lot of people turn away from God when problems come their way, when they experience some tragedy. Now, when we experience tragedy, when we experience grief, one of the normal responses oftentimes is anger at God. That is a perfectly natural thing. The Psalms are filled, filled with prayers of the people of God 
praying prayers of anger towards God because God has let them down, they feel, in one way or another. But that's a, there's a difference between just having an anger towards God and expressing that anger towards God and holding on to that to the point where we turn away from God in our lives. So one of our members, we were recently talking uh, down here just a couple of weeks ago after a service, he was talking about a guy from work where they've been having some conversations about faith. He said this guy had at one time had a very strong faith and then something tragic happened in his family and so he had turned away from God. And so I just kind of you know, said what I was thinking. I said it out loud. I said, well, that response is just more evidence that what the Bible says is true. And he's like, you know, what do you, what do you mean by that? And, um, and I explained, well, I would never say to, this, to someone who's in grief and experiencing tragedy, I would not, this is not what you lead with. It's not even what you finish with, okay? You, you, you let them go through that. But the reality is that that guy, just to pick on that guy for just a moment, that guy had tragedy happen all around him all the time. He knew people who had tragic things happen in their lives. He could, anybody can put on the news and you see all the tragedies that happen on the news, all the bad things that happen to so many people. But when, it, when did he turn away from God? When it impacted him. What does the scripture say? We're turned in on ourselves. We are self-centered. That's what I meant. It just... It actually confirms what the scripture says about us. But think about this. Think in contrast to us when we turn away from God because something bad has happened to us. Jesus came to earth and he suffered and he died for us for only one reason. He died for a completely unself-centered, unselfish reason. He had nothing to gain from it. So Jesus experienced our pain. In other words, he saw it hadn't hit him. Okay, he has nothing to lose. He's God. But he saw our pain, somebody else's pain. And what does he do? He loved us so deeply that he gave his life to end our pain with nothing in it for him to gain. We see pain all around us. And it's not until it hits us personally that all of a sudden we get all worked up. Jesus, before it doesn't even hit him personally. He sees our pain, and he's willing to give up his life to end our pain with nothing in it for him to gain. We miss the resurrection, number four, when we look for, G for a Jesus that dispels all of our doubts. The reality is that absolute, absolute proof of our faith and absolute certainty will never come. You cannot have absolute certainty. It's just not going to happen. God, Jesus, could show up this Easter simultaneously all over the world for all of us to see and compare notes and say, yep, did you see it? Yes, I saw it. All over the world. And we would find ways to explain it away. We could still doubt, just like the disciples doubted as they're standing in front of Jesus. Yes, that can happen to us. There's no way to completely dispel our doubts. But there is evidence for the truth. It doesn't mean that because there isn't absolute proof that there isn't evidence, that there isn't reason, rational reasons for believing in the resurrection. There's all kinds of reasons uh, in the resurrection story itself. One of those is in this text. Here you have Mary as the first witness. In the other Gospels, it is Mary, the other Mary, and the other Mary who are the first witnesses. It's women who are the first witnesses. Now, in our world, that doesn't mean anything, but in their world, women 
were not even allowed to be witnesses in a court of law. That's their status in that world. So if you're going to make up a story about the resurrection, are you going to make up in that day, first, first uh, century, are you going to make up a story where the first witnesses are women? And where the heroes of the story, the disciples who become the heroes of the church, don't believe even after they see Jesus? Do you make something like that up? Those are, that's some of the evidence for the resurrection. Doubts are a part of life. Faith isn't the absence of doubt. Christians doubt. All Christians doubt. But when someone looks for and will follow a Jesus only, if he dispels all their doubts, you have to suspect that maybe something else is going on. When someone says, I have to have all my doubts dispelled, something else may be going on. So several years ago, I read an article by a philosophy professor named Jim Spiegel, and what he had done was he spent some time studying what atheists themselves, famous atheists in particular, had said had led them to atheism, why they were atheists. And he said, you would think, reading these guys, you would think that they had all come to some conclusions through rational ways of thinking, okay? So here are all the arguments against there being a God. Now, that was included in it, but what he didn't expect was as he looked closer at their own words, a theme that developed. Here's an example of that theme. This is atheistic philosopher Thomas Nagel. He says, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And he found that time and time again in the writings of atheists themselves. He talks about, in the article, Mortimer Adler, who was an atheistic philosopher who came to faith at the age of 81 and reflecting on his life, he said he rejected Christianity most of his life because, in his words, it would require a radical change in my way of life, a basic alteration to the direction of my day-to-day choices. The simple truth of the matter is that I did not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. But somewhere along the line, he got a different vision of Jesus. What, what these atheistic philosophers, what a lot of us need, probably is not just more evidence, like a rational argument, although that's helpful. What we need, maybe more than anything, is a vision of the goodness of God and a greater vision of the goodness of the way of life that he calls us to. One more way we miss the resur- resurrection. We focus on a way of life, but miss Jesus himself. And it might not just be even a way of life. We focus on the doctrine of the resurrection and miss Jesus himself. Uh, Another way to put this is that we focus on religion instead of on the relationship. And this may be the greatest danger facing. This is the way that those of us who actually believe in the resurrection, the greatest danger for us is that we would believe in the resurrection but miss the relationship that Jesus calls us to have with him. Look at Mary's breakthrough in the garden. It's just beautiful. Beginning in verse 14, John 20. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her one word, 
Mary. At that one word, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She had her breakthrough when Jesus just speaks her name. It's, it's personal. It's full of grace. It's gentle. It's not woman. I told you I was going to rise from the dead. <laughs> it's Mary. It's gentle. It's personal. Mary may have been able to, unable to understand the memo from Jesus that he was going to rise from the dead, but she wanted Jesus himself. And how tragic would it be that those of us who actually believe in the resurrection, we believe in the doctrine, the teaching, the theology of the resurrection, believe that, but actually missed the personal Jesus who wants us to walk with him and live with him and live for him day by day in our lives. We can actually believe in the doctrine of the resurrection and miss Jesus. Jesus called Mary by name. Jesus calls us by name. Also in John's gospel, he says, he calls us by name like a shepherd calls their sheep by name. The question is, are we going to go to him? Are we going to respond to him? The Bible tells us that we respond to him by putting our faith in him. We read it earlier together out loud. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, puts their faith, their trust in him, shall not perish but will have eternal life. And then it goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. When we put our faith in Christ, not only do we receive the eternal life that John 3.16 speaks about, but also at the same time, we receive a more meaningful life. Jesus put it this way in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. If you have not put your faith in Christ, it might be worth investigating the actual life that he calls us to, investigating the life of Jesus and the actual life that he calls us to. Don't miss the resurrection. Don't miss Jesus. Put your faith in him today if you have never put your faith in him. Well, we're going to continue our worship by responding together. And we start that by celebrating communion together. So today we're on Easter. Today we're on Resurrection Sunday. But just a few days ago, on Thursday, Jesus had gathered with his disciples. And he had celebrated the Passover with them. And as they were celebrating the Passover... He took the bread of the Passover and he said, take, eat this in remembrance of me. I, this is my body broken for you. His body is broken in our place. Let's eat that together. And he took the cup and he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. This is for the remission of your sins. My blood shed for you for the remission of your sins. Let's drink it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great love that you have for us, that you would be willing to give your one and only son so that we might have eternal life by putting our faith in him. What he did on the cross for us, and through his life, we can look forward to our own resurrection and to life eternally with him. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has not put their trust in Jesus. Maybe today they understand it in a way they never understood it before. 
So we took communion. Jesus said, so we take that, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, someone heard of the Lord's death, our Christ's death, in a way that they had not understood it before. I pray that they would put their faith in you. I pray that all of us who have put our faith in you would live in that faith and live in that grace that we receive. For we are made right, not by what we have done, but by what you have done. Help us to live in that truth and in relationship with you that that truth makes possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.